Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 86, Adam's Rib. This episode contains part two of my interview with Dr. Philip Payne, author of Man and Woman, One in Christ. Uh, in part one of the interview, which you heard last episode, he gave us his positive case for egalitarianism, the view that it's just as legitimate and just as appropriate for women to be pastors and elders and teachers in the church as it is for men, and that uh, and that women, and that men are not the authority within their household any more than uh, the wife is. Um, he ta- uh, told us a little bit about himself and his upbringing, how he was instilled with a, uh, with a deep uh, commitment to inerrancy, uh, and it was that very commitment to inerrancy that led him to uh, an egalitarian perspective. Um, we talked about the Hellenistic and Jewish backgrounds uh, to Paul's ministry, um, how Hellenistic culture was somewhat mixed in terms of its view of women, but the surrounding Jewish context was rather uh, low, a low view of women. Uh, and then, but standing out from that crowd was Paul's teacher Gamaliel, who uh, taught a very uh, a much higher view of women than his surrounding culture. Uh, and um, we looked at the scriptures that served as the backdrop to Paul's ministry, uh, and how there were several uh, female leaders um, in a variety of different uh, kinds of positions. Um, and the Lord's treatment himself of women, uh, which is something that Paul would have picked up on as well. Um, we shifted to the examples that Paul gives in some of his letters of, of women that uh, my guest alleges were ministry leaders, people like Phoebe, whom Paul calls a deacon and a prostatis, um, which my guest argues means something akin to leader. We talked about Priscilla, uh, who along with her husband Aquila instructed Apollos in the way of God. We talked about Junia, whom Paul calls an apostle in Romans 16, 7, uh, and then a number of other women as well. And then Dr. Payne gave us some examples of why uh, Paul's writings uh, should be understood as supporting an egalitarian perspective, not the least of which he argues is Galatians 3.28, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, um, which my guest argued cannot be limited to just spiritual equality in Christ. So that was uh, that was the positive case. Uh, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't already. Um, it was at that point in the interview that we moved on to objections, common complementarian objectives, objections to the egalitarian perspective. So let's go ahead and move into that part of the interview right now. Put him in a long, deep, peaceful sleep and took out one of his ribs. God made me from Okay, well, uh, so I think we've covered a lot of the foundations of your positive case for egalitarianism. Is it right with you if we move on now to the second? Okay. Yep, that's fine. Okay, well, 
So as it turns out, um, you recently gave a presentation entitled "Examining the tw- uh, quote Examining the Twelve Biblical Pillars of Male Hierarchy," uh, and, you, and you sent it to me. And in this presentation, you go through twelve of the most common complementary and objections to your view uh, when it comes to the equality of men and women in the church and at home. Now we don't have time to go through all of them, but I do think that we can get through a lot of them and the most important ones. And the first of them is First Corinthians eleven three, in which the NASB translates Paul as saying, "Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head." of a woman. Now, on the surface, it seems to some to indicate that just as Christ has authority over every man, so also man has authority over woman. Uh, if that's not the case, why not? The English translation, man is the head of woman, uh, it does not say, by the way, a woman, man is, man is the head of woman, seems to imply head as authority over. But its context explains that it means the man, Adam, is the source of woman. In Paul's day, the Greek word for head, kephale, was not commonly associated with leadership as it is in English. The most exhaustive Greek dictionary lists 48 translations of kephale as a metaphor, but none mean leader or authority or anything similar. Hmm. Nearly all dictionaries covering native Greek usage up to New Testament times do not give even one example of kephale that means authority. Source, however, is a standard meaning of kephale listed from earliest Greek lexicons to the present. The items listed in 1 Corinthians 11.3 are not listed in a descending or ascending order of authority, but they are listed chronologically. Man came from Christ's creative work. Woman came from the man, with an article. Christ came from God in the Incarnation. When Paul wanted to make a hierarchical series elsewhere, he did so in a logical sequence, as in 1 Corinthians 12.28. All attempts at interpreting each of these references to Kephale as authority over end up with three quite different authority relations. Paul implies that Christ alone is the Kephale, head, of every man, by adding an article to it, in contrast to the other two occurrences of Kephale in verse 3. Christ is not, the, Christ is not in the present, however, the only authority over men. But Christ as creator is uniquely the source of every man. Hmm. Paul foreshadows this theme shortly before in 1 Corinthians 8, 6 by writing, Christ through whom all things came. Not only does Paul return to the creation theme in 1 Corinthians 11, 7, 8, and 12, this theme is foundational to his whole argument against hairstyles that repudiate marriage. The authority interpretation fails to explain a distinctive sense in which Christ is the authority over every male person, as required by the Greek word translated man here, namely andros. Source fits better than authority, as the meaning of kephale in the man, with an article, is kephale of woman. As with each of the three statements in verse 3, the second member is highlighted with an article. Since each of the other cases, the article identifies a specific entity, Christ and God, and since the most common use of the article is to specify, it's most natural to understand the man, as in 11.12, as a reference to the man Adam, from whom woman came. This fits perfectly with the established meaning of kephale, as source, since Adam was the source from whom woman was taken, and since both verse 8 and 12 refer to this event. Cyril of Alexandria states, head, kephale, means source, arche, 
the source of man is the creator God. Thus we say, the head of every man is Christ, because he was made through him and brought forth to birth. And the head of woman is man, because she was taken from his flesh and has him as her source. Likewise, the head of Christ is God, because he is from him. Theodore Matsushta explains the man as head of woman, quote, since she had taken her being from him. Many other Greek fathers, including St. Basil, Athanasius, and Eusebius, also explain Kephale here as source. Source fits better than authority as the meaning of Kephale in God is the Kephale of Christ. Chrysostom, Theodoret, Theophylact emphasize the misuse of this verse by Arians and others to subordinate the present eternal or ontological Christ to the Father. This passage says nothing about man's authority, but rather affirms woman's authority. Paul recognizes her authority to pray and prophesy in verse 5, her authority over her own head in verse 10, and her equal standing with man in verses 11 and 12. The point of Paul's head-body metaphors with Christ as the head of the body of the church is not the authority of the church, but that Christ is the source of life and nourishment for the church. For instance, Colossians 1.18, He is the kephale of the body, the church, who is the origin or the source of life of the church. Colossians 2.19, the kephale from which the whole body grows. The Standard New Testament Dictionary states that kephale can denote origin, cause, motive, reason, source, from which something flows or comes. Ephesians 4, 15 to 16, the head that is Christ, from whom the whole body grows. The Greek Old Testament shows that most of its translators did not regard kephale as an appropriate word to translate, to convey the word leader. When the Hebrew word for head refers to a physical head, they almost always translated kephale. But when this Hebrew word meant leader, they hardly ever translated it kephale. In 171 such instances, the standard Greek translation translates it kephale, clearly meaning leader, only six times. Um, I, I, the, one thing that confuses me a little bit, and maybe you could just spend uh, just a moment explaining this, is it, how, how does that, and I'm not saying that the uh, complementarian understanding is any better, but how does this understanding of man as the source of woman tie in with the head covering issue? Oh, oh I'm glad you asked. The... Uh, you need to understand the what what's being referred to here. Uh, people say that uh, it's think people sometimes think that the, it's a garment head covering. Uh, we know that's not true for two reasons. First of all, at the end of the argument, Paul says, "Doesn't nature teach you that long hair is a shame for a man, but long hair is the glory of a woman if she wears it as a covering?" The word for covering in that sentence, that last statement, is the only reference to a garment covering in the whole passage. Uh, and it identifies hair as the covering. But the other thing is, we know that in Greek culture, the uh, overwhelming uh, preponderance of the graphic data pre depicting women does not have them wearing a garment covering. The, the professor from Macquarie University in Australia was in Cambridge when I was there, and he invited me to come with him 
to the Classics Library because I was asking about the meaning of what is the covering here. And the Classics Library in Cambridge has the largest collection of plaster busts in, uh, from the Greek world in the world. And from roughly 300 B.C. to 300 A.D., virtually all the depictions of women were not with any garment over their head. Mm. And virtually all of them, except the Maenads, the wild women in the Dionysiac cult, who would engage in sexual orgies, virtually all of them had their hair done up. Doing one's hair up was a symbol of modesty. Hair let down was a symbol of unrestrained sexuality. And these two issues are the issues that Paul is addressing in this passage. Both were shameful, and both were regarded as shameful. When you say both, you mean man's shaving is... It's shameful for a man to wear long, effeminate hair because of his association with homosexual activity. It's what people did in that day to attract liaisons, sexual relations, with other men. It's like wearing drag today. Uh, during Paul's day, there's an article called Effeminatus by Herder in the Reelection for Antica and Christentum. He lists over 100 instances in Greek literature where men wearing effeminate hair are ridiculed, and the largest group of them come from Paul's day. Uh, I could give you lots of examples, but the... Um, the point is to understand the background. It was shameful for a man to wear his hair like a woman. And it was shameful for a woman to let her hair down loose. And yet both of those were primary uh, issues, uh, actions in the Dionysiac cult, which had its center right there in Corinth. Uh, Pausinius says that virtually the entire population of Achaia was introduced into sexual activity in the Dionysiac cult. And he says that there was more homosexual activity in the Dionysiac cult than heterosexual. So you have these, and Paul, in introducing this, his letter to the Corinthians says, he lists all these sins, including effeminate mm. homosexuals and uh, people that are uh, unfaithful in marriage, and says, and such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been cleansed in the blood, blood of the Lamb. So what's apparently happening is some people were living out the practices they had held before in the church. And Paul is saying, this is not to be done by church leaders because it's shameful. And the Greek culture viewed it as shameful. The reason he's talking about the source is he's saying, men, you should respect Christ, your source, your creator, and not live contrary to the way he made you. He's laying a foundation of respect in this source argument. And women, you need to respect your source. Your source came from man. We know that Paul's concerned about respect related to source because in, in verses 11 and 12, he specifically says, just as woman came from man, so every man comes from woman. And all this, and he does that following after, woman is not separate from man, nor is man separate from woman in the Lord. So, he regards the the respect owed to one source as a key motivator for people, for women not to let their hair down because it's shameful, especially to their husband, uh, and but would be to the entire church as well. And for men to be wearing their hair in drag was disrespectful to the way God created them. And uh, so, okay. 
So that, that's how it all fits together. In fact, if you, if you understand that cultural background regarding men's hair and women's hair and the shame associated with the both, then you understand why he begins the passage by saying, uh, that I praise you in all these things, but I want you to know. See, they were following customs, but this was something novel by them. And the end of the passage, he says, we have, we, the churches of God, have no such custom. The translations that said we have no other custom is the exact opposite of the Greek. The Greek never means that. We have no such custom. Well, if you were talking about a universal church custom that women must wear a garment over their head, why would he end the argument by saying we have no such custom? Hmm. But, but on the other hand, if he's talking about something that they were doing, which was a novel breach of, uh, the way church is carried out elsewhere, then he would say, we have no such custom, and it fits. Yeah, and, you know, the one thing I might add, too, is I can't, and, you know, my complementarian uh, friends that are listening probably might have an answer to this, but but I can't. I- can't I, I struggle to figure out how the authority, the authority, alleged authority relationship between man and woman would explain this difference in head coverings? But but even even on top of the source arguments that you just gave, I could see how an appeal to the mutual um, the, the mutual kind of relationship that God created, the, the physical relationship between male and female, uh, might be something that would uh, that that he would use to support proper um, head coverings. Uh, even on top of the source arguments gave. I don't know if I'm making much sense. but, oh, I, but you are. You are. In fact, this resolves the key problem in verse 7 where he speaks about uh, the man as male. Mm. And it's specifically male here on air. This is not anthropos. Man as male is the image and glory of God. Uh, and he says, but, uh, it's, it's literally, man ought not to wear his hair up because he is the image and glory of God. And I think we have here an argument going on there, how they would defend their actions. Why shouldn't my hair be glorious? I am the image and glory of God. And he says, but woman is the glory of man. In other words, woman was made to be man's sexual partner, not another man. And that's why he says woman was made for man. Uh, And it all fits together. Yeah, I, I could see that. I mean, uh, obviously, I'm, I've got more research I've got to do, but I definitely see that, and it makes more sense than uh, than I've understood than that I can make sense of it if I were to to apply the authority relationship here. But but let's let's go ahead and move on uh, yeah. to the second so-called pillar that you discuss in your presentation in Ephesians five, yes. uh, where, where Paul uses very similar language to speak of the man as being the head or maybe source of wife, uh, and in which the NASB renders Paul's words: "Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord." If why are to be subject to their husbands as they are subject to Jesus Christ, doesn't that mean that husbands are in a position of authority over their wives? Well, grammatically, the wife's submission is explicitly one facet of mutual submission. So I agree, wives should be in submission to their husbands. But it's part of a mutual submission. Mm. And it's a reflexive pronoun, which means it goes both ways. It wouldn't be a reflexive pronoun if it were not reflexive. Uh, It refers to voluntary yielding and love. Paul calls both wives and husbands to defer to and nurture one another. Christ is the model, the head, and Paul defines what he means by head in verse 23 by equating it with Savior through emphatic apposition. 
Christ the head of the church, he the savior of the body. What does Christ do as savior? Paul explains, Christ gives himself for the church and nourishes and cherishes it. Paul also treats husbands and wives equally in relation to their children and tells wives to rule their homes. Literally, be house despots. If this isn't leadership in the home, what is? <laughs> okay. All right. Well, I'm curious, though, is there anywhere where explicitly this language of being subject uh, is reversed? Is there anywhere that says husbands be subjects to your wives? I'm not saying that that idea isn't there. I'm just curious to know if there's anything nearly explicit like that. Well, in this very passage, he calls husbands to be willing to give up their lives for their wives. If that's not subjecting yourself to your wife, what is? Okay. Well, I could just see, I could see a complementarian like myself maybe arguing that the submission there is of a different nature or something like that, but, uh. Well, it's, and the explicit word, hupotasso, is used in verse 21. Be subject to one another, wives oh, to your okay. husbands. And, in fact, there is no verb in verse 22 saying, wives submit to your husbands. The, it, the verb is dependent on and taken from the be subject to one another, I Why, wives to your husbands. So grammatically, it's part of the same sentence. It's dependent on it. It has to be the same meaning. Yeah, I understand. So wives being subject to your own husbands is just one example of the one another sub, uh, subjection that he said that he gives in the in the previous verse. Exactly. Yeah. And in fact, for for a first century reader, uh, we focus on wives being uh, subject to their husbands, but the first century reader. Uh, they would hardly notice that. Everything is on, wow, the husband is supposed to nourish and wife, nourish his wife and to love her as he loves his own flesh and to be willing to die for her. And Christ is this model for the husbands to follow. Most of the wording here is calling men to be good husbands. I see. Okay. Well, let's move on to the third one then in, in this 12 pillars presentation, which is 1 Timothy 2, 12 and 13, where Paul says, A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, this is the big one, or at least in uh, many of the circles that I've, that I've traveled in, uh, this, this teaching or exercising authority issue. How can this be understood as anything but a prohibition against women teaching authoritatively in the church? First of all, we've got to look at the translation. The translation of verse 12 that you just read, uh, whoever came up with that translation did not do his homework. This verse simply prohibits women in the church in Ephesus from assuming authority to teach men. It does not prohibit women from teaching men as long as they have recognized teaching authority, like Priscilla did. The old NIV misleadingly reads, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. This translation is doubtful for four reasons. First, the key Greek verb here, authentain, is best translated to assume authority. The first documented occurrence of authentain, clearly meaning exercise authority, is three centuries after 1 Timothy was written. Mm. Every other reference to authority in the New Testament is based on a different word, exousia. In Paul's day, authentane could mean either to dominate or, more commonly, to assume authority. Every time it means assume authority, and I'm talking every time uh, for a thousand years after Paul, the authority is seized, not rightfully held. The King James translation to usurp authority reflects this understanding. The standard New Testament Greek dictionary defines it 
to assume a stance of independent authority. The NIV 2011 correctly translates it to assume authority. And by the way, Doug Moo was the chairman of that committee. And uh, he is a member of the uh, Biblical Manhood and Womanhood group. Is that a complementarian group? Yes, it is. Okay. It's, it's the, the major complementarian group. And he called me up after the decision because I'd sent the committee the data on this. And the committee, which consisted of a lot of the, like, mounts uh, and so forth, a lot of the people who were the strongest complementarians, that committee agreed with my evidence that the, tra- the, tra- the word cannot mean uh, to exercise authority, but should be translated to assume authority. Okay, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, um, the, there's a book by Kostenberger about this, and the article on Authentane says, in the time of Paul, there are four possible meanings of the word, and he gives to assume authority as one of the key ones, most likely. He does not list to have authority or to exercise authority as one of the possible meanings. And this is from the book on, the, on this topic by uh, complementarians. By the way, I regard myself as a complementarian because I believe God made men and women to complement each other. Uh, the difference between a complementarian and an egalitarian is not that one believes in complementation and the other doesn't. The difference is that the complementarian group believes that God has established a hierarchy of male authority over females. And I don't see that taught anywhere in the Bible. I understand, uh, and and I see your point here about assuming uh, or illegitimate, illegitimately seizing authority or something like that. But well, I'm curious to know why is it that he calls out specifically women as being those that he doesn't allow to uh, assume authority? Was there a problem in the church, uh, the churches that Timothy was an overseer over, or something? A, a problem of women doing this, but not oh, the reverse? Yes, there is there is no reference to any man in First Timothy being influenced by the false teaching. There are many, many references to women being influenced by the false teaching, including uh, some of the younger widows have already followed after Satan and are going about from house to house, which is probably house church to house church, saying things they ought not. Uh, the false teaching is summarized as old wives' tales in First Timothy. The When you have a group that is being deceived by the false teaching, you have to stop it. Sure. And Paul recognizes the problem. He identifies the source. The, re- the primary reason he gives for the prohibition is because he, he says, look, Eve was deceived. And look what it led to, the fall of the church, fall of, the fall of the humanity. And in Ephesus, Eve's in Ephesus are being deceived and is leading to the fall of the church. They're following after Satan. Uh, because of the deception, he limits the teaching. But it's not that he limits all teaching. He specifically limits uh, teaching in which a woman assumes for herself authority that is not recognized by the church. So if Priscilla, who was in Ephesus at the time, at least she was in Ephesus when Second Timothy was written because Paul greets her, uh, if Priscilla were to teach, this would not be assuming authority over a man, because she had recognized authority. But if someone who's been uh, turned on to this false teaching 
grabs the podium, grabs the pulpit and starts preaching, that's assuming authority that is not theirs to assume. I understand, but but I want to discuss this a little bit more, though, because uh, uh, in your book, anyway, um, in addition, you know, in addition to the saying that this this is a prohibition against women assuming authority. Uh, on the other hand, in your book, you say that the Greek indicates that this is a temporary historical instruction, not intended to be permanent. But what what, what confuses me a little bit is, does that mean that uh, that there would come a point in time where it would be okay for women to assume authority over men? Uh, that's that's a really good question. Uh, the if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, chapter 14, uh, you'll see a vision of church life, which is what I would call open worship. Everyone is encouraged to have a teaching, an encouragement, uh, an exhortation. Everyone's in, encouraged to prophesy. No one's prohibited from speaking in tongues. Uh, th- there's open worship, and everyone's jumping in and doing their thing, and Paul encourages this. That open worship has a weakness. And the weakness is if someone takes that freedom and uses it uh, to convey false teaching contrary to the gospel, then it, it can destroy the church. And in that situation, Paul has to say, okay, what are we going to do now? We're going to address this, and we're going to address it by looking at the group that's been primarily influenced by it, and we're going to take away the primary tool for spreading the false teaching. Namely, those people who've been influenced by the false teaching conveying it to the, to the assembled church where men are present. And that's what he, that's what he restricts. And the conjunction here, this udea between the, I'm not permitting to teach udea authentic. Again, that's, that's the conjunction that typically in Paul joins together two elements to convey one idea. So we don't have two prohibitions here. First to teach and secondly, to assume authority over man. It's one prohibition, assuming authority to teach men. It's the combination of to teach and to assume authority over a man. The, the beginning phrase, I am not permitting, is, uses the verb which almost always refers to a present prohibition, an ongoing present issue, and hardly ever to a permanent prohibition even if the subject is God doing the uh, permitting or prohibiting. So, yes, I do believe that Paul is addressing a current issue in the church and saying because of the deception, because of the false teaching, we're going to have to prohibit women from assuming authority, that is, taking the initiative to teach in the church. But I think it would be Paul's goal uh or at least a worthy option, the same position that he had espoused before in 1 Corinthians, that everyone participate in an open worship if we don't have uh, this big danger of the downfall of the church through false teaching. Okay, I, I think I understand. So you're saying that, uh, you know, the, the ideal was for men and women to stand up and, and teach authoritatively, mutually to one another. Uh, but in this one particular area, there was, uh, there were women being deceived by false teachings. And so in that particular historical context, Paul was instructing Timothy to prohibit those women from doing that kind of authoritative teaching, uh, but it was a limited historical context, and when the ideal is in place and women aren't succumbing to uh, 
um, false teaching in that particular area, then that ideal could be realized again of both men and women standing up in the church and and authoritatively teaching. Is that something like what you're saying? Something like I just you mentioned. I don't know if you intended to that he was addressing those women. The text says nothing about a particular kind of woman as the subject here. It's uh, women are not to assume authority to teach men. They're not to take it on themselves. No, but when I said those, what I meant was the women who were who were at that time being led astray by these false teachings. Right. Uh, the uh, a recent poll wouldn't. Yeah. The the Greek grammar does not restrict it to a particular group of deceived women. Uh, you can argue back from the reasoning for they were deceived, but the actual statement is restricted on women. If you simply state that de- that deceived women are not permitted to teach, then a woman could say, but I'm not deceived, so it doesn't apply to me. Right. No, I, I think I, I think I think we're on the same page. I think I might just not, not be communicating very well because I agree that he's not saying deceived women, but other can't can't assume authority. But but uh, women who aren't deceived can. What I mean to say is just that in this particular context, because so many women were being deceived, he had to cut it off universally. Exactly. At that time. Right. But not but not in the future when, when or in other areas where the ideal can be realized. Is that is that fair? Yep. That's exactly what I think he's saying. Okay, fair enough. All right. Well, I'm sure that I'll get some email that maybe I'll talk to you about afterwards. But uh, but, but let's move on to um, what you call the created order uh, argument. Um, you know, complementarians will point out that Adam was created first, followed by Eve. And what's interesting is in the in the passage that we looked at in First Timothy, Paul seems to base his instruction on this order. He says it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. Surely this indicates that the order in which Adam and Eve were created is significant uh, and lends itself to male authority over women in the church and at home. And if not, why not? Okay, the uh, the best understanding for understanding First Timothy two thirteen is Paul's argument. That woman comes from man in 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 12. The one other passage where Paul refers to Adam being created first. There, Paul argues that woman should respect man since he is the source from which God made woman. Similarly, in 1 Timothy 2.13, man's being formed first, then woman, implies woman being formed out of man and so points to the respect woman owes man as her source. For instance, Philo. Uh, argues that since woman was formed from the side of man, woman should honor man. Significantly, in 1 Corinthians 11.11, Paul affirms the equal standing of woman and man. Woman is not separate from man, nor is man separate from woman. And in verse 12, he affirms that woman is also the source of man, Mm. apparently to keep readers from interpreting his affirmation that women came from man as a basis for subordinating women to men. All of the various things Paul has just commanded women in, in 1 Timothy, learn in quietness and full submission, do not teach, and assume authority over man, but be quiet, are predicated on respect for man. When you, when you take authority that's not legitimately yours and you grab the pulpit, it's disrespectful. Uh, if when I was giving my lecture, my lecture a week and a half ago, uh, some woman had jumped up the podium and grabbed the microphone from me, that would not be respectful. And that's what Paul's talking here. Uh, women should respect man since man was created before woman and since woman was formed out of man. 
The sequence of God forming Adam first, then Eve, highlights Adam as the source of Eve and through her of all women. Out of respect for man as a source, a woman should not assume authority over men. It's interesting, though, that Paul adds, Adam was formed first, then Eve. This is the first documented occurrence that Eve, as well as Adam, was formed by God. By including Eve as also formed by God, Paul affirmed the essential equality of men and women. Verses 14 and 15 also counterbalance the role of woman in the fall with her role in giving birth to the Savior. She shall be saved through the childbirth. Similarly, the other passage citing the sequence of the creation of man and woman, 1 Corinthians 11, 8 and 9, counterbalances this in verses 11 to 12. So, so then if we look at all of Paul's teachings, there's a sense in which Adam is the source of Eve, but there's also a sense in which men, uh, women are the source of men. Yes. Uh, and so, and so this would lend itself to source, uh, this, this order of creation, but, and then the reverse order of, in childbirth, indicating that the respect is to, is to be mutual. Is that kind of what you're right. getting at? Except that I believe that this is original with Paul. I found no instance in any literature from the Greek world which uses this argument before 1 Corinthians 11. I see. Well, that, that wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I think that, uh, the New Testament authors had a, <laughs> some special revelation, particularly in light of the time they spent with the Lord. But, uh, in any case, we're, we're going to come back to these pillars in a moment, but I do want to discuss a couple of objections, um, which you don't include in this presentation, but which are kind of related to these opening chapters of Genesis. Um, and in fact, this one is related to this passage here. What about the fact that Eve sinned first, eating of the forbidden fruit and then giving it to Adam to eat? Uh, we were just looking at that Timothy passage, and Paul also uh, bases his instructions on the fact that it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Doesn't this in, in some way indicate that uh, her having sinned first is an indication that men are going to be authority over women? Well, verse 14 does not mention Eve sinning first, or giving the forbidden fruit to Adam, or anything about men's having authority. It stresses instead Eve's deception in a variety of ways. I won't list all the ways. Uh, she was thoroughly deceived. The example of Eve's deception demonstrates with the greatest possible force how tragic the outcome can be when a woman is deceived and conveys her deception to others. Her experience epitomizes why women should learn in quietness and with full submission to recognize church te teaching, namely to overcome their deception. It also epitomizes why they should not teach and assume authority over a man. Otherwise, women who had not been authorized might teach their deception to the church. Okay, so let me give an analogy, if you don't mind, just to see if I'm understanding you right. This just occurred to me. Um, in uh, both Jude and Peter, uh, both authors are giving their audiences examples of historical cases in which people were punished um, because after being, uh, you know, well, because they were disobedient. Uh, Jude and Peter both give examples of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Peter, uh, Peter gives um, uh, Noah's flood. Jude gives the men that were uh, freed from Egypt. Now, the point that I'm getting at is if Paul here to Timothy wants to give the biggest, most sh uh, flashy, you know, most prominent example of what happens uh, I I historically that is analogous to this particular case in Paul's time where women are, are misleading people because they're being misled, it would make sense that he would turn to the quintessential example in Scripture of a woman being deceived and then bringing about, uh, you know, horrible consequences by by deceiving men. Is exactly. That kind of 
Exactly, exactly. This is the perfect example to say, this is really serious. And, and even though we've got this general pattern in the past of an open worship, we just can't go on with this. It's just too important. Okay. All right. I, you know, I, I can buy that. Again, I, I've got, you know, this is some stuff I'll have to think about and research, but um, it is sort of starting, starting to click. Um, but interestingly, although it was Eve who sinned first, uh, Paul elsewhere seems to indicate that Adam was the representative of all mankind. He, he says in Romans 5 that through one man sin entered into the world, and by the transgression of the one, the many died. How would you respond to those who might argue that Adam's uh, serving as representative of all mankind supports male headship in a way that would lend itself toward uh, male authority structures in the church and at home? Several observations are crucial that show that it is illegitimate to deduce man's authority from this passage or its parallel in 1 Corinthians 15. Number one, there is no reference to head or headship in Romans 5 or 1 Corinthians 15, or authority of men. Nor is there any reference to Adam's authority or the subsequent authority of men in either passage. The second observation, there is no reference to male in Romans 5. Our English translation seems to make it obvious that Paul is speaking about one male man, Adam, and one male man, Christ, but the word Paul uses for man, however, is anthropos. It clearly focuses on the humanity of both and avoids the term on air that could have identified the focus on man as male. Neither Romans nor 1 Corinthians, the two letters with the Adam-Christ analogies, ever uses on air regarding Christ. His maleness is not in view, like our English translations might suggest. Rather, it is his humanity that Paul identifies. Third observation. The Genesis text uses the same word Adam, first for mankind, or the, the first human couple, then with an article identifying the man, the first time Adam is unambiguously used as a name for the first man, without an article, is Genesis 4.25 after the creation account. And Genesis 5.2 states, Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them, and called their name Adam. And this is not the man, it's Adam. It's like a, a name implying that Adam is their name. Consequently, both from the Hebrew, Adam, and the Greek usage, there is not nearly the clarity that our English translations seem to give of Adam as the name of the first male man and Christ as the name of the last male Adam. Fourth observation. Paul explicitly calls uh, Adam a type of, of Christ in Romans 5.14, or perhaps more appropriately, an anti-type of Christ. Typology is always analogical and should not be pressed for strict logical equivalence. Paul is focusing on Adam as a type, or anti-type, of Christ. What he affirms regarding Adam does not imply that there are no other types of Christ, or that he could not also make a similar comparison with Eve as he in fact does in 1 Timothy 2, 14-15. It would be a mistaken treatment of type to infer from Romans 5 that the woman did not sin or that the fall of humanity can be exclusively attributed to Adam. 
1 Timothy 2, 14 to 15 contrasts, con, uh, uh, contradicts such an interpretation. If Paul were pressed, I believe, though I'm not sure, I believe he would say that he intended to focus on the first Adam as the antitype of Christ, but that he did not intend to imply that the first woman was not equally an antitype of Christ, or that somehow only the male Adam is the federal head of humanity and only his sin caused the fall. It's possible, however, that he would reply, no, 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 I was referring, like Genesis 5, 2, to Adam, the first human couple. Didn't you notice my use throughout of anthropos, not on air? Oh, okay, but well, I don't know. That seems like a little bit of a stretch to me. But but maybe what I would be willing to say at this point, given you know the, the time that I've spent so far, is he could be just using person. Would that be fair? I mean, anthropos meaning human, like you said. In right. other words, so he's not concentrating on it being the first male, but one of the first humans, either Adam or Eve, and, and either would equally serve in the example that he's giving in these analogies. Is, right. that, is that fair? When, when I to give. There are many people who use Romans chapter 5 uh, to prove universalism. Everyone will be saved because, look, it says uh, in Romans 5, all this stuff about uh, the all being uh, in the last Adam and so forth. The, the danger of taking typology, what a type, when you take a type of Christ, you find an event which has a correlation and illuminates the significance of what Christ did. And then you draw attention to the points of similarity and to the significance of Christ through the eyes of this type. If one then uh, goes back to the language in describing the type and tries to take each sentence of it and make each sentence its own theological independent affirmation, you can get in trouble. Uh, and end up with universalism taught in Romans 5. Or, or, yeah, I can see that. I mean, just as an example, uh, many of my fellow Reformed brethren uh, would would object to, um, and, you know, I, I'm not intending to make an argument in favor of, of, of Calvinism here, but I just wanted to sort of give an example that, you know, we Reformed people oftentimes are some of the most staunch complementarianism, uh, complementarians, and yet when, when a critic of Calvinism would point to, say, the parable of the, uh, of the prodigal son, um, critics of Calvinism would take elements of that parable out of the Try, try to make applications of every single word or sentence within the parable um, when in fact we need to look at the parable as a whole and just try and, and, and only limit ourselves to the application that the author of the parable gives uh, you know th that might be kind of along the same lines here that the type the type should we shouldn't be looking at every single tiny word or sentence that describes a type and making applications of that we should only allow ourselves to follow the application that the author gives of the type is that fair right and the problem I see with the federal headship language is it introduces into the type picture a whole new set of vocabulary about head and headship that's not represented by a single word in the whole type description. Um, and there you're really out in a limb because it's all speculative. Yeah, I understand. 
Well, let's return to your presentation then. Uh, if it's all right with you, I'm going to skip the seventh pillar because you gave us numerous examples of uh, women uh, who were in positions of authority within the Old Testament. Uh, and so, you know, the, the seventh pillar you describe in your presentation of, uh, you know, a pattern of male rule seems to be one that isn't always consistent. You know what I mean? So, right. so if it's okay with you, I want to skip to the eighth and ninth pillars that you discuss in your okay, presentation. Sure. Um, which is that the Old Testament has, uh, only males as priests. And the, and the ninth pillar is that Jesus selected only males as his apostles. Um, we did already discuss Junia, whom Paul calls an apostle, whatever he meant by that. But here it appears what you're talking specifically about the 12 men Jesus chose as his disciples. Why do you think then, uh, that the mosaics law, the mosaic laws prohibition against female priests, or rather prescription of only male priests, uh, and Jesus' selection of only male apostles. Why don't those work against egalitarianism? Well, first of all, the the only social or religious position of significance that the Old Testament does not record women holding is that of priest. The most obvious reason for this is the association of priestesses in pagan religion with prostitution, which Deuteronomy twenty three prohibits. God repeatedly forbade Israel from giving an appearance of following the immoral practices of the surrounding nations. But even the Old Testament ideal was for all of Israel to be, quote, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Isaiah 661 predicts a future when all God's people will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. Jesus didn't appoint any Gentile or slave as a member of the Twelve. Does this mean that Gentiles and slaves should be excluded from church leadership? (laughs) Or should be limited to what roles they can take? Jesus chose men to avoid scandal and for symbolic parallel. If Jesus had included women in the gatherings in the shadow of darkness, especially in the wilderness or in places like the Garden of Gethsemane, this would have raised moral suspicion not only about Jesus, but also about the twelve on whose integrity the church would depend. Jesus' appointment of the twelve Jewish men paralleled the twelve sons of Israel and reinforced the symbolism of, of the church as the new Israel. It was not aimed against women in church leadership. We know Jesus did not intend to have only male disciples because Jesus encouraged women as disciples. When Mary sat at the Lord's feet, the posture and position of a disciple, Jesus affirms her. Mary has chosen the better part, and it will not be taken away from her. Furthermore, we know that Jesus did not limit the proclamation of the gospel to men. For the first person the resurrected Christ sought out and commissioned to announce the gospel of Jesus' resurrection and his coming ascension to to God the Father was Mary Magdalene. Christ appointed her an apostle to the apostles. Okay, yeah, I understand. Uh, those aren't those aren't particular arguments that I would have made anyway uh, as a complementarian. But uh, but but the tenth pillar is one that, as a complementarian, I would make. Um, and in it, you respond in this tenth pillar of your of your presentation, you respond to the argument based on uh, Paul's instructions to Timothy in First Timothy three, in which the overseer is supposed to be quote the husband mm-hmm. of one wife or or a one woman man. Now, doesn't this indicate implicitly, if not explicitly, that the overseer of a church is to be a man rather than a woman? Even prominent even even prominent complementarian scholars Doug Moo and Tom Schreiner. <clears throat> acknowledge 
this phrase does not exclude women. Most scholars from Chrysostom to Grudem understand it to exclude polygamists. As Hugenberger, another complementarian, has shown, it is common throughout the Bible for prohibitions addressing men also to apply to women. Do not covet your neighbor's wife implicitly also prohibits coveting your neighbor's husband. Paul's point is not that all overseers must be married. Paul, after all, encourages single believers not to marry, but to be devoted to the Lord in 1 Corinthians 7. Furthermore, to demand that overseers be married would exclude Jesus and Paul and virtually all Catholic priests. One woman man is not a requirement for all. It is an exclusion of a specific category of people as ineligible. Similarly, having children in subjection with all respect, ruling children and their households well, and having children who believe do not restrict eligibility to married people with at least two children old enough to believe. Since one woman man is a set phrase that functions as an exclusion, any claim that a single word of it, man, also functions separately as a universal requirement must posit a double meaning. This is not warranted by the context. It is bad hermeneutics to isolate a single word from a set phrase, one woman man, that functions as an exclusion of polygamists and elevate that single word to the status of a separate requirement for all. It would be like taking household out of ruling children on their own households well and insisting that only slave owners can be overseers. Hmm. I understand. Uh, so then, the, the, whatever whatever male pronouns are used in this passage then, if any man aspires the office of overseer, uh, you know, it, whatever male Whatever male words that are used here, you would say are just um, representative of. Uh, I mean, it's sort of the way. Well, that, that's the other funny thing. You you read the NIV text, and they have twelve masculine pronouns in this section of First Timothy three. Mm. In Greek, there are zero, not oh. one, not one masculine pronoun. The subject is tis, whoever, anyone. Okay. Who, whoever desires the office of overseer, overseer desires a good work. He's encouraging everyone to desire it. I mean, if women were excluded, he would be encouraging the desire for forbidden fruit. And I don't think Paul's like that. I understand. Furthermore, it goes on in uh, a couple of verses later, he again reuses the same subject, tis, whoever. There's not a single masculine pronoun. Uh, there, it's interesting. There are only two translations which are faithful to the Greek on this point of the masculine pronouns. Uh, the uh, American Bible Society did the contemporary English version and the new common English Bible. Both of them are correct. Neither has a single masculine pronoun in either 1 Timothy 3's requirements for church leaders or Titus 1's for requirements for church leaders. And that's what the Greek has. In both, the subject is tis, whoever. I understand. Yeah, our people have read English Bibles that have had whatever man desires, he must be, he must be. You hear that 12 times and you really think the text <laughs> is about men. Uh, and I... Uh, I hold culpable those translators 
who have changed the text to insert masculine pronouns in this passage when they knew there were no masculine pronouns in Greek. I, uh, I am not pleased with the new NIV translation because they kept those masculine pronouns in after I notified every member of the committee that there's not a singular masculine pronoun in Greek and I gave them a clear, clean translation that's literal that they could have gone with. Yeah, okay. No, I, I, I hear you and, and I, I can sympathize with, with your objection to that. Uh, it, it, it's, it's sort of the exact opposite of when translations insert or sister whenever brother is used or something like that. You know, it's the exact opposite where they're changing the original Greek. Exactly, yeah. You know, uh, but, but, it, but in their defense, it, it, it seems to me like it's at least po- possible that the reason why they do that is because of this one little phrase here, the one woman man. However, it sounds to me like, it sounds to me very feasible what you're explaining that number one, that phrase one woman man had a particular meaning that, that ruled out polygamists, not women. Uh, but second of all, it would make sense to me, I, I, I could be wrong, but I'm not aware of there being uh, any uh, reverse, I don't know, what is the word, polyamory, multiple husbands of one woman. Uh, and if no such situation existed, but polygamy was being ruled out, it would make sense that he would refer specifically to male husbands of multiple wives since the reverse situation didn't exist. Is that fair? I have not heard of any instances in uh, in Ephesus uh, of polyandry. Mm, yeah, uh, it, it's a very rare thing, and uh, yeah, the uh, when when one is dealing with qualifications for an office, you don't go for things that haven't happened for hundreds <laughs> of years. Yeah, you you go for the guttural. You go for what's really gonna help people in the church. Okay. All right. Yeah, that's fair enough. I, I, I think this sounds pretty plausible. Um, but, but let's go on to the 11th pillar in your presentation. Uh, you spend a lot of time with it. I'd like to try to do it briefly if possible. But in, in 1 Corinthians 14, 30, 34 and 35, the NASB reads, The women are to keep silent in the churches... For they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, my understanding is that many complementarians uh, do not believe that this prohibits women from speaking at all in church, but rather that men are allowed to speak in church uh, in a way or in a position um, in which women are not. How do you respond to complementarian arguments like this from this passage? It is true that many complementarians refuse to accept the plain meaning of this text. These verses three times explicitly prohibit women from speaking in church. Quote, the women are to keep silent in the church, for they are not permitted to speak, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Many complementarians suggest that these verses prohibit only the questioning of prophecy. A novel idea first published in 1962, only four words in verse 29b refer to this, referring to others weighing carefully what the prophets say. On this view, verse 29a is elaborated in verses 30 to 33, and verse 29b is elaborated in verses 34 to 35. Verses 30 to 33, however, cannot be an elaboration of 29a, since verse 31's all may prophesy contradicts verse 29's limitation to two or three prophets speaking. This indicates instead that verses 30 to 32 introduce something other than what verse 29 addresses. 
Furthermore, the four words about judging prophecies are not only too far from verses 34 and 5 for this association to be apparent, they're in a separate paragraph, since verse 33 concludes the preceding section. The one specific application in verse 35 of women being silent mentions nothing about judging prophecy, but is rather about women asking questions of their husbands out of a desire to learn. Learning implies a position of sitting under, not standing over, and so is inappropriate as a word to express evaluating or judging. Furthermore, no lexicon or Pauline usage supports to speak, meaning to evaluate. And its reiteration, along with the similarly unqualified expressions, remains silent and it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church, show why for 1,900 years this interpretation never occurred to anyone. Furthermore, since prophecies can, con can conflict, which is implied in verse 29, the prophesying permitted to women in 1 Corinthians 11.5 entails at least as much authority as that exercised by those evaluating the prophecies. Since women are permitted to prophesy, it is natural that they should be included in the others who weigh prophesies, prophecy, prophecies in verse 29, especially since the gifts are for all according to 12.7, against the NIV's addition of each man in verse 11. So then what is this a reference to, the, the women being told to keep silent and not permitted to speak, but to ask their own husbands at home? What, what is the point of this, this passage? Uh, there are two uh, logically possible uh, answers to that question that do not entail contradiction in Scripture. Uh, the first one, which I do not think is likely but is possible, is that this was written in the margin by Paul's oh, secretary. Right. You mentioned by, this earlier. Yeah. By Paul's secretary. And uh, it was written in the margin as a reminder to the people there uh, in Corinth that there was a prophet among their midst who made this prophecy, which he quotes in the margin. Uh, not one that he agrees with, because he says it, it's right next to, if, if it were written in the margin, right next to it would be his own words. If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him know that what I say to you is the Lord's command. Uh, it's contrasting his own belief with this false prophecy. It's possible the, um, there are weaknesses to the view, but that's possible. The other view is that uh, this verse was originally written in the margin, but not by Paul or his secretary, but by someone who took an early copy of the manuscript and wrote it there in order to give his opinion that women should be silent and to undermine a reading of Paul's text where he says all may prophesy and encouraging all to teach and so forth and say, but we're, but this can't apply to women. And the vocabulary of the two verses is so similar and the structure of the grammar is so similar 
to First Timothy or yeah, First Timothy two eleven to fifteen, that I suspect someone worded it with that passage in mind. There's even in uh, many manuscripts a very rare grammatical error, uh, which is used in the same kind of construction in both places. There are only two places in all of Paul's letters that use the verb epitrepo. And these are the two, 1 Timothy 2 and this passage here. Um, the I mentioned earlier the uh, amazing discovery that in Codex Vaticanus right. there are these marks of textual variance. This is very important uh, for our belief in the reliability of the transmission of the New Testament text because it gives us a window into a far larger uh amount of text than survives today from before Codex Vaticanus. Uh, I, I suspect that in the scriptorium in Alexandria, which is generally thought to be where Codex Vaticanus was written, there were roughly 20 copies of the New Testament available for the scribes to use. Well, we have the equivalent of roughly one copy today that survived, if you add up all the papyri before Vaticanus. Because we're able to identify textual variants at almost all the places where these marks of textual variants occur in Codex Vaticanus, and there are 765 of them, so there's a bunch here, Mm. Um, this gives us a statistical basis for believing that we today, through surviving manuscripts, probably know most of the textual variants that were available to the scribe of Vaticanus. Yeah, which is very encouraging in terms of our... our Oh, it's huge. Yeah, yeah. It's huge. And so, but of these, uh, distigmai, there are eight which are accompanied by a long bar uh, that is longer than most paragraph marks called paragraphoi. Uh, and it sticks out in the margin longer than most paragraphoi. And every one of the eight distigmai with a long paragraph Mark that sticks with a large, a long bar that extends into the margin farther than normal. Every one of the eight occurs at the exact location of a multi-word, widely acknowledged interpolation that is an addition to the text. Yeah. Now, of all the categories of distigmai that have ever been published that I've ever seen, this has the highest percentage of hits with Nestle Elan, Novum Testamentum, textual apparatus, uh, textual variants. 100%. And the reason is that the Nestle Elan restricts itself to the more important textual variants. And every time there's a multi-word interpolation, that, that's an important textual variant. Yeah. So we have this, but... I think that the if you look at the statistical probability of this happening, uh, that there would be a Nestle Elan Novum Testamentum textual variant, uh, which only happens about one line in three in Codex Vaticanus, that there would be eight instances, and every one of the cases where you have the distigma of the long bar sticking on the margin, occurring where there's a particular kind 
of textual variant, namely a multi-word interpolation, the odds of that happening at random and happening in every one of these cases, the, the odds are trillions against against one that this would happen. So this is a mark of an interpolation, yeah. which indicates that in our oldest, most important manuscript of the New Testament, we had marked there by the scribe an indication that there's a, an interpolation here. Yeah. Well, there's no other interpolation uh, in Neslilan, uh at this point. There's no other textual variant of a multi-word interpolation in any manuscript anyone's ever found or proposed. This is the only one that would fit the nature of this mark. So I believe that this combined with about 14 internal factors. For instance, the entire book of First Corinthians is addressed to the church in Corinth. All the way through. This is the only verse in the entire letter which is addressed to Churches. Women to the churches. It's an it's a imperative form. Let women in the churches. It's expressly addressed to women in the churches, not to Corinth. Well, that's the kind of thing you would expect in an interpolation. It's not what you'd expect in Paul's original letter. I understand. Uh, another thing. Every time Paul quotes the law and uses the word nomos, and he quotes the law, you can find the passage and say, he's referring to this passage. This is the only case when he says, as the law says, and we don't know where it's pointing to because there's no place in the entire Old Testament that says let women keep silent. There's no place that says women are not to speak. There's no place that says women are to be in subjection. Nowhere in the Old Testament does that, does that occur. You know, it's, you know, what's kind of funny is I'm looking at the NASB right now online and it, and that the law next to the law is a footnote BH. And what's funny is that points to 1 Corinthians 14.21 where Paul quotes the law uh, saying, By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me. That has nothing at all to do whatsoever with uh, with uh, women subjecting themselves. So I think that's kind of interesting that, that, like you say, his reference to the law here forces translations to try and take a stab in the dark as to what possibly he might be referring to. And, and in the case of the NASB here, I think they do a pretty poor job. Um, so yeah, I, I, I find what you're saying pretty plausible. I'm just just out of curiosity: is there something in in the originals that are uh, not originals, but you know what I mean, the copies that, that indicate where this interpreta- interpolation ends? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, every manuscript in what is known as the Western text tradition has verses 34 and 35, following verse 40. Oh okay. And every manuscript I've ever seen has verses 34 and 35 as a separate paragraph. Okay, so then it would be, so chances are very, very likely that in the original, Paul goes from verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of pieces in all the churches of the saints, uh, to verse 36. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Is that what you're saying? Exactly, and it makes much more sense. It keeps the whole thing together. Those two verses interrupt the flow of the passage. Uh, they're unlike the further. Well, another thing that's a real telling point is those two verses use vocabulary from First Corinthians 14, but use it in a way that's foreign to the context. Mm. So you have reference to speaking, but it's restricting a group from any speaking, unlike anything in the context. And the reference, the other references to speaking have to do with speaking in tongues, speaking in prophecy, and so forth. Uh, 
my book goes through all the evidence, uh, and uh, there's one of the oldest, some say the oldest, copy of the Latin text, Latin Vulgate, is Codex Fulensis. It's the first dated manuscript in the world where Bishop Victor of Capua, who commissioned it to be done, and Bishop Victor of Capua was kind of like, uh, in, in that day, uh, Bruce Metzger equivalent. Mm. Uh, he was the most famous textual scholar of his day, published all kinds of things. And one of the things he published was the Codex Falensis. And in it, he noted, uh, various textual variants. And one of, he commissioned a professional scribe to write the text. His handwriting is not as good as the professional scribes. So we, we know when he's writing in the margin what his corrections are. And we know because at the end he says, I, Bishop Victor of Capua, on this day and uh, this year, in this month and this year, uh, completed going through the entire manuscript, making corrections. And he did the same thing, went through it twice, and gave the second day, month, day, and year, when he finished the second correction. And uh, there are eight instances when he uses a special mark in the text which says, read the text from the bottom of the page. And then it has the text rewritten at the bottom of the page. In every instance except this instance, he's bringing the text into conformity with what we call now the standard Vulgate text. In this one case, he rewrites the text. So you end at the end of verse 33, and you, there's a mark saying, read the text below. And it goes directly from 33 to 36. And it completes the entire paragraph to verse 40 with a mark to continue and then a corresponding Roman numeral where the next chapter begins and the text places. This is replacement text. We know that because there's, there's another correction in the text too. He's replacing 33 to 40 with 30, uh, 34 to 40 with 36 to 40 and leaving out 30, 34 and 35. So, and Bishop Victor of Capua was the one to whom ancient manuscripts were brought when they found stuff. For instance, his Gospels in this very Codex Valensis is the diatessaron form of the Gospels. The diatessaron, uh, which means through four, it's, uh, it's a conflated form of all four Gospels as one narrative story. That was pro, it was, uh, prohibited for use in the church because the four Gospels were deemed to be our authority and not someone's opinion about how they fit together. Mm. And for hundreds of years, it was suppressed. But when, when, when a Capua was found, it was taken, sure enough, to Bishop Victor of Capua. He realized its importance, and he had that diatessaron form uh, published in Codex Valensis. So that's an example of when a manuscript is brought to him, he is willing and has the the financial resources, the theological clout to be able to include it in the text. So in other words, you're not coming up, the, the point of all this being that your, your identification of this passage as an interpretation, interpolation is nothing new and it's not anything that, uh, incredible scholars from, from history oh, haven't already done. Oh, no. oh yeah. if, in my book, I have two pages of just references of scholars who have argued that this is an interpolation. Okay. Most, most of the scholarly studies about this question have concluded that it is an interpolation. 
Okay. Okay. Well, we're running out of time, sort of. So let, let's let's move on. I, I, I'm finding everything that you're saying quite compelling. I'll admit. Um, but there is one last objection that I have, and it's more practical in nature. It's not based on any exegesis or anything, uh, and it concerns husbands and wives in the home specifically. Um, if husbands aren't designed to be in a position of authority over their wives in the household, well, then when they can't agree on some particular decision, even after spending you know immense time in prayer and, and carefully considering what each other has to say and stuff like that, how can a final decision be made? Doesn't there have to be, in the end, uh, someone who can make an authoritative decision? Someone asked me this question about eight years ago. And in the last time since then, I've made it my habit of asking mature Christian couples if there were any times when they had to make a major decision where the only way to resolve it was for one of them to have the final authority. I have not yet heard a (laughs) single instance when this actually occurred. Just think about your closest friendship. Imagine that this friend were to tell you one day, I believe God wants me to have the final authority for all decisions in our relationship. Of course, I will take your feelings into account, and at the end of the day, you, but at the end of the day, you must accept that I have the final authority. This is a recipe for an unhealthy relationship for both parties. It undermines the respect for the subordinated party. It invites grudges when one's desires are vetoed by the other, or when one is forced to do something she would never agree to. And there are plenty of divorces which have resulted from this kind of situation. For instance, when I went to be in Japan as a missionary, if my wife had said, I don't want to go to Japan, and I said, but God's been guiding me to go to Japan as a missionary for years. I've been preparing for this. Uh, we've got to go. And she said, I don't want to go. If we had gone, it would have been a bad testimony to the people. Um, but that's an example. Uh, for Christians... There is someone who has final authority, but it's not either the husband or the wife. It's Christ who works in both spouses through the Holy Spirit and through the scriptures to bring them to a consensus. Okay. No, I understand. I, and and I, I'll admit that I can't think of any instances in my marriage where, where that's been required, but uh, I'll, I'll wait and see what kinds of emails I get from people who maybe have had experiences like that. Uh, but but let's, uh, let's begin to wrap up, because I'm sure that there are tons of other challenges, well, maybe not tons of other challenges. There might be a few other challenges to egalitarianism that we could discuss, but I, I think that the ones we've discussed are some of the most common and uh, and seemingly, at least on the surface, powerful ones. In fact, I think that we might have addressed all the ones that I went through with uh, the complementarian I interviewed um, like last year or something. Um, so let's begin to wrap up. But, but how important do you think this issue is? If you're right about what the Bible says concerning the equality of men and women, not, not just spiritually, but practically and in terms of authority in the church and at home, how important is it then that men in churches and in homes accept this view of male and female authority and why? Well... How important is it to follow the commands of Scripture, including submit to one another out of reverence for Christ? (laughs) How important is it to accept as true that in Christ there is no male-female dichotomy? And that woman is not separate from man, nor is man separate from woman in the Lord? And by the way, the translations that say independent, that's not in the Greek lexicons. It's, It's made up. Uh, the word is separate from. How important is it that we not treat other believers as second-class citizens, excluding from positions of authority in the church, 
even though the Holy Spirit has gifted them for and called them to ministry. How important is it to show that Christianity is not like Islam in restricting the freedom of women? How important is freedom in Christ? I believe these are very important. Okay. Um, well, besides your book uh, and your website, which I'm going to ask you about in a moment, uh, where would you recommend that listeners and I go for further scholarly defenses of egalitarianism? And, and, and let me just make an amendment to that because um, I'll confess, and this is me personally, that there have been many uh, defenses of egalitarianism that I've found woefully inadequate. And, and, and I'll be honest with you, yours was the first that I found even remotely convincing, and, and I'll admit even more than remotely. Um, so are there similar defenses of egalitarianism that sort of avoid some of the pitfalls of many of the kind that, that we complementarians have seen um, that, that you might recommend? Well, uh, there are some that I find very well done. Uh, the first one is not even written by an evangelical, uh, it's Eldon Epps, Jr., the first woman apostle. It's a brilliant, uh, incisive historical study of how Junia was changed from a woman to a man, and he goes through all the historical data. It's beautifully done, well-written. I, I recommend it highly. Uh, a work which, I don't agree with everything in it myself, but a work which is uh, chuck full of good insights, is the anthology edited by Ron Pierce of Biola University, Discovering Biblical Equality. And there's a journal called Priscilla Papers. And it has a consistently very high quality articles. I have, I can't recall any of the articles unless it was one that I wrote that was abrasive. Uh, there, uh, it's very, um, carefully written, uh, up, built. I never go away feeling angry at someone for it. Um, it's, it's ironic. It's won all kinds of awards. Priscilla Papers is, is excellent. Okay. Uh, and is there any sort of parting message? I like to do this with a lot of my guests. Is there any sort of parting message that you'd like to leave us with? Something that maybe you hope sticks in our minds more than anything else in the, in the over two and a half hours that we've talked today? Yeah, there's one thing. Uh, remember we talked in, about Galatians 2, just before that in Christ there's no male-female dichotomy, how Paul rebuked Peter. And you got to admit, being called a hypocrite is not fun for anybody. Sure. Being Imagine if you were Peter and someone says, you're acting contrary to the gospel. I mean, this is not fun. Um, and yet... There are, there are two indications that Peter repented of his actions there. Uh, the one of them is ambiguous, but the word that Paul uses when he says, I confronted him to his face, uh, is the word used when in a military conflict you confront an opponent and defeat him. So that might suggest that Paul won that argument and uh, Peter repented. But it's not a sure thing. But what I think is compelling is in Second Peter, Peter writes and says, all of Paul's letters are scripture. Mm. He says some of them are hard to understand, but all of Paul's letters are scripture. Well, there's never been, to my knowledge, any collection of Paul's letters that did not include Galatians, which means 
Peter is calling this letter, which accuses him of hypocrisy and acting contrary to the gospel, as scripture. He could not do that if he hadn't repented. So those who say that they affirm the equality of men and women, yet exclude all women from church leadership, should follow Peter's example and repent of their gender-based exclusion contrary to the gospel. Okay, well, I really appreciate that, uh, and, and, you know, I'll take that to heart. I hope my listeners will as well, uh, and, and take this issue and begin to examine it more deeply than perhaps we have in the past. How can my listeners get their hands on your book, and where can they go to find your website and, and maybe contact you if they have any questions? Okay, my website is www.pbpain.com. www.pbpain.com. Uh, you can buy my book there for $17.75. The list is $29.99. Um, and that website has the full 255-page bibliography for the book. It has all kinds of articles you can download free. Uh, it includes the article that was just published uh, in the book Le Manuscrit de la Bible uh, that I wrote with Paul Canar at the Vatican about the 51 Dystigmae. It's um, the book. That book is over fifty dollars, but uh, you can download the article free from the website. You just go to uh, publications and then articles, and there it is. And other articles I've done in, in New Testament studies and Novum Testamentum and other journals. Uh, the journals have given me permission to uh, make them available on the website free. Cambridge University Press sells them for twenty bucks each, but they're free there. So it's a really useful site, and you can uh, read all kinds of things about research on the manuscripts, and uh, it's, it's a great resource. Also, I'm, I comment on uh, all kinds of issues that people raise and make comments. So that's it, www.pbpain.com. And you've got a contact link there that I think is what I used to get a hold of you, and you were pretty quick to respond. So uh, I'm assuming you're comfortable with people emailing you at the link there if uh, if they have any questions for you, that kind of thing? Yep. Awesome. Okay, well, I've really appreciated your time. I want to thank you so much um, for challenging me and my listeners. I'm not saying that I'm convinced, you know, from one interview, but I will say it was compelling, and I'm encouraged to do some more research, and I hope my listeners are well. So thank you for your time today. Thank you very much. All right. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Uh, I enjoyed it, and I feel challenged um, to go and research the issue in greater depth. Next up should be an interview with James Jordan on preterism and the book of Revelation. Until then...